Please take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah 15. Be renewed. I hope that this evening's message is uh, an, an encouragement to you. And I'm so thankful for these. Uh, it is one of those... I, uh, I, I keep kind of admitting that Jeremiah is a little bit of a downer book, and in a manner of speaking it is, but really it's not in so many ways as well, right? We keep seeing the Lord's mercy. We keep seeing the Lord's grace. And yet I feel like I'm just preaching judgment to you every week. And so I'm excited for messages such as this, where while there's still going to be a lot of judgment in the exposition, we get to turn our hearts toward encouragement and comfort and renewal in our time of application. And I'm excited about that. When we last left our text, remember we stopped in Jeremiah 15, verse 10 last week, and when we last left our text, we had just seen Jeremiah join in the lamentation of the mother who had borne seven children. Recall, Jeremiah had mentioned that the mother who bore, bears seven children will greatly uh, weep and, and she will mourn. The implication being that, generally speaking, when a woman bears that many children, and, and people have throughout history uh, given birth to many children with the express reason that infant mortality was so high that you would have enough children to get through the statistics, right? To push through the statistics and still have children that live into adulthood. And, and so there would be this... this um, um, comfort that the mothers would be given in the children that did live for those that did not. And yet Jeremiah said that she that has borne seven languishes, that woman that bears seven children would lose all seven children. And so Jeremiah gives this woe. The more children she has, the more sorrow she'll have because the more children she will lose. But then Jeremiah, remember in verse 10, joined in that lamentation, uh, saying that he, he wishes that he had not been born. Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me, the idea is saying, as a man of strife and a man of contention, that uh, though he had been an upright man, he had not been a man of sin, he had not been a man who uh, um, took usury or, or, or that lent on usury, yet he was still a man who was cursed by his brethren. Every one of them doth curse me, he says, and, and this is because of his prophetic ministry, that he is a truth teller, and in this particular time of, of ministry, being a truth teller means that he was a bad news teller, right? And so he, he laments that. And we are going to continue in this context. I'm going to read again in verse 10, and then we'll jump into verse 11 uh, in the context. The Bible says this, Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me a man of strife, and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent on usury, nor men, uh, nor men have lent to me on usury, yet every one of them doth curse me. Verse 11. The Lord said, Verily it shall be well with thy remnant. Verily I will cause the enemy to entreat thee well in the time of evil and in the time of affliction. So, God is responding to Jeremiah here, right? Jeremiah has said, woe is me. He said, woe, woe to the woman that has seven children. And then he says, woe to me, woe to my mother, woe that, that she begat me, a man of sorrow, a man of grief, a man of affliction, uh, a, a man of strife and contention are the words that he used. And then God says, verily it shall be well with thy remnant. And the question that we have to ask this evening is this. 
Who is the thee? Who is the thy? When God says, verily it shall be well with thy remnant. Now we know because we read the King James Version of the Bible and the King James helps us with this, that because we see thee and thou there, we're dealing with a second person singular pronoun, right? When we see a you or a your or a ye, that means that, that there's two or more people being spoken to, a second person plural pronoun. When we see a thee, a thou, or a thine, there's only one person being spoken to or one entity. Sometimes it's a nation that's regarded as one entity. It's a second person singular pronoun. And we have the second person singular pronoun here. So then the question becomes, is God speaking directly to Jeremiah here, thee, or is he speaking to the nation of Israel, thee, thy remnant? And when we see that word remnant, immediately we might say, well, this sounds like Israel, right? It shall be well with thy remnant. A remnant, a remainder, a remainder. Uh, we know of the remnant of Israel that there's going to be a remnant. However, that doesn't really make sense in context, does it? Not only is God speaking directly to Jeremiah here, and if you look in the following verses, uh, we'll, we'll see more of that. Uh, but on top of that, it's not going to be well with any remnant according to the Lord this time around, right? God is saying all seven of the, of the children of the woman are going to die, right? There's not going to be a remnant. There's going to be a remnant that goes into captivity, some will be brought, you know, some will die by famine, some will die by the sword, and the rest will go into captivity. But everyone will feel the pain of this. Now, this has been a, pro a common problem throughout the book to know context directly. Who is speaking at what time and when do things transition? When is God speaking and then when is Jeremiah speaking and then when is the nation replying? And we've kind of struggled with this throughout the entire book. When does God stop talking and Jeremiah start talking, right? Uh, is it God saying that he's weeping or is it Jeremiah saying he's weeping? We don't really know a lot of times. When does Jeremiah stop talking and the nation start talking? When is it the nation talking to God? When is it Jeremiah talking to God? When is it God talking to the nation? When is it Jeremiah talking to the nation? And this can be difficult. I actually had someone ask asked me a couple of, uh, of weeks ago about when I was preaching through Jeremiah 12, and there was one of these that came up, and, and, and they asked me about it. It was in Jeremiah 12, verses 5 and 6, where the Bible said this, If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how, uh, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace, wherein thou trustest, they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? For even thy brethren and the house of thy father, even they have dealt treacherously with thee. Yea, they have called a multitude after thee, belie thee. Believe them not, though they speak fair words unto thee. And I said that this describes, when I was preaching this, I said this describes a picture of footmen running after a chariot who would attend upon their masters at their destination. And the illusion was that God was very angry with the footmen, the sons of Anathoth, for their evil against Jeremiah, but not the horses, the ones who were setting the pace. And that's how I interpret it, because I believe that Jeremiah is still speaking to God here. But if God is actually, if, if we switch context and it's God speaking to Jeremiah, then everything changes as far as this meaning, right? If the pronouns are reversed and God is speaking to Jeremiah, then it, we would likely interpret it that God is saying to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, if you can't even handle the footmen, kind of like in battle, if you can't even handle the footmen, then what are you going to do when the horsemen come? 
If you can't endure the land, if you're so frustrated against the land in the days of peace, what are you going to do in the bad days, in the days of, 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 of floods and of, of the swelling of Jordan? And both of these are entirely valid interpretations depending on whether or not we believe Jeremiah is talking to God or God is talking to Jeremiah. And sometimes I pick one to run with. Other times I try to give you both ideas. But, but in many of these cases, both of these are valid linguistically because we simply don't know exactly when the transitions are happening in the text. And as we continue to come against these uh, uh, difficulties, uh, I'll, I'll try to bring them up. We, we see one right here in Jeremiah 15 verse 11. It seems to me here that God is replying directly to the complaint of Jeremiah, not to the nation as a whole. And within this interpretive context, God would be telling Jeremiah that though he has suffered greatly in the name of the Lord, yet the remnant, in the remnant there will be it shall be well. In other words, in the, in the, at the end of his days, in the latter part of his life, it will be well with him. That's the idea. It shall be well with thy remnant, with the end of thy days, with the latter end of thy days. That though the enemy, Babylon, will not treat the nation well, as he says here, I will cause the enemy to entreat thee well in the time of evil, in the time of infliction. Affliction. God will cause the enemy to treat Jeremiah well in the time when the nation suffers the evil of Babylonian captivity. And imagine how, if this is the case, if this is the, the context, imagine how important that would be for Jeremiah to hear. See, Jeremiah has been speaking among his own people. These are people that are on his team, right? He's a Jew, they're Jews. They all have a, a similar root. They all uh, re regard a similar customs and traditions. And he's thinking, here I am, God, and I'm talking to my own people. These are, these are my brethren, and things aren't going very well. My own brethren hate me. These days, when everyone else is smiling, they're, all, they're smiling except when I come through the door. And when I come through the door and I start to speak, then everyone gets angry at me, and they're cursing me, right? And if these are the days before the bad days, God... What's it going to be like for me in the bad days? He thinks, if this is the time I'm having before the bad days, imagine what the bad days will be like for me. See, at least right now, the nation of Judah gets to have some semblance of enjoyment, right? They get to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, but not Jeremiah. Jeremiah, in these days where everyone else is ignoring him and moving on with their life, he is pouring himself out in a message, uh, the, the Lord's message for the people, and he's being cursed and he's being scorned by his own people. And, he, and perhaps what's going through his mind is, God, here I am being cursed and scorned by my own people, and then when I finally, the only thing that's going to relieve this curse and this scorn is when the enemies come and destroy us. And then what's going to happen to me? Then I'm going to have to deal with the enemy. And so if that is the context, if that is what's going through Jeremiah's mind, and we could see why perhaps that might be, as he's called himself a man of strife and of contention, then here we have the Lord saying, don't worry, Jeremiah, in thy remnant, at the end of your days, it will be well. I will entreat the enemy well on your behalf. They will treat you well. And this would be an important assurance for Jeremiah. God telling Jeremiah, yes, you're suffering now, but at the end of your days will be well. Verse 12. Shall iron break the northern iron and the steel? A couple of interpretive possibilities with this question. If God is still speaking to Jeremiah here, 
we would understand these words to be in relation to God's promise all the way back in chapter 1. That promise all the way back in chapter 1, and we'll see it again in just a few verses, we'll see it in our context tonight, is that God promised Jeremiah that as long as Jeremiah stuck with the Lord, Jeremiah would be a wall of brass and of iron, right? He would be a wall, and as the people came against him, they could not overcome him. That he would maintain his obedience and resolve, and in doing so, he would be a defensed city, an iron pillar, a brazen wall. See, as Jeremiah thinks on his own message, he's considering his own existence. He's troubled. What of his own existence? Is this suffering going to be the rest of his life? What happens when all of this stuff that he's, he's proclaiming is going to happen, happens? So God plays off of the promise that, uh, that he's given to Jeremiah. Shall iron break northern iron and steel? If God is speaking to Jeremiah here, then most likely what's happening is he's likening the nation's heart to iron, that they are hard, that they are cold, right? That they, are, that they don't want to hear what God has to say. And yet he says, as hard uh, as, as the iron is of their hearts, it is nowhere near as powerful as the northern iron and the steel. That would be Jeremiah in this case. That God regarded Jeremiah as protected and empowered and blessed by God to be stronger than the resistance of the nation. So that's one possibility. However, the other possibility is that beginning in verse 12, God is speaking to the nation. Now, he almost certainly is beginning to speak to the nation at least in verse 13. And so the question is, does he start in verse 13 or does he start in verse 12? I can't really tell you. However, when we think of the idea of northern iron and steel, this leads us to the idea of those coming from the north. And those coming from the north would be Babylon and the enemies of Israel. So it might make sense in this context then to believe that God is beginning to speak to Israel here in verse 12. And if God is speaking to the nation, then the meaning would change. Instead, he would be asking the nation, can your strength, can your iron as a nation compete with the strength of the nations of the north, the steel and the iron of the nations of the north? Can you actually expect to stand against the strength of the nation, which is so much mightier than you? And naturally, of course, the answer would be no. So it could be either one of those interpretive possibilities. Either way, as we get into verses 13 and 14, it's almost certain that God is speaking to the nation. We read this. Thy substance and thy treasures will I give to the spoil without price, and that for all thy sins, even in all thy borders. And I will make thee to pass with thine enemies into the land which thou into a land which thou knowest not, for a fire is kindled in mine anger, which shall burn upon you. So God promises to the nation, and it seems more likely to me that verse 12 goes toward the nation. It doesn't go towards Jeremiah. And then God most certainly says to the nation here that God is going to give their substance and their treasures as spoil without price for the sins that they have committed. That the nation would be made to pass through the strange land uh, of the east. And God concludes this reinstitution of his warnings with a reminder that it is because they have kindled the fire of God's anger. And the fires which they kindled are going to burn them up. Jeremiah again seems to respond to this message himself beginning in verse 15. So we've gone from Jeremiah giving the woe and God responding to Jeremiah saying, it will be well with you in your latter end, to God again speaking to the nation and saying, you don't have power, you will be spoiled because of the anger which has been kindled against me by your sin. 
And then Jeremiah replies in verse 15. His concern here is going to remain upon himself, not necessarily in a selfish way, however, perhaps in a discouraged way. I think we are seeing a time of Jeremiah's discouragement. We've seen a couple of these, and they're going to get progressively worse until he comes to a climax of discouragement in Jeremiah 20, where he actually chooses to walk away from ministry, and it does not go very well for him. This also may be a concerned way. As the enemy gets closer to him, closer to the nation, Jeremiah feeling the weight of the doom that is coming upon the land. So Jeremiah says this in verse 15. Jeremiah says, O Lord, thou knowest, remember me and visit me and revenge me of my persecutors. Take me not away in thy long suffering. Know that for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. So God tells Jeremiah, we might believe in verse 11, that it would be well with him and his remnant. That though he was effectively cursing the day he was born in verse 10, God would cause the enemy when they came to treat him well. But Jeremiah is not just concerned about his own treatment. He wants two things. First, he wants that mercy to be treated well. But secondly, he also wants to be vindicated. He needs to be vindicated. He says, Lord, you know what I've gone through. You know everything. So remember me. Visit me and revenge me of my persecutors. In your long suffering, don't take me away. In your long suffering, I do ask for that peace in the latter end, in the remnant. And this is not necessarily the prophet desiring the people to be destroyed here. Remember how many times Jeremiah has wept for the people. We've seen time and again, Jeremiah is weeping for the people. But rather, Jeremiah is asking for his message, the message which he has delivered at great cost to himself, simply to be vindicated. So Jeremiah says, remember, I've been suffering for your sake, Lord. Remember that I've suffered rebuke for your sake. Jeremiah has poured his entire life into the truth of the message which God has given him to declare. For this message, Jeremiah has given up his happiness, his reputation, his rest. He is an enemy among his own people and called to remain an enemy unto his own people until such time as either they repent and get on God's side, or until such time as the enemy takes over, which is going to happen. And it isn't as if he's an enemy of his own people because he's a friend of Babylon's, right? I mean, sometimes when you're an enemy of the people that are yours, it's because you've made a, a calculated choice. You see the enemy coming, you see your own people, and you say, there's no way my people can overcome the enemy, so I'm going to go become a friend of the enemy, and you become a traitor to your people. And if the enemy wins, then you're good to go. And if the enemy loses, then you're a traitor to your own country, right? It's not like that. It's not as if Jeremiah is looking at Babylon, knowing Babylon's coming and saying, I'm on Babylon's side here. Nothing of the sort. He loves Judah. He loves his people. He is not a traitor who knows that the enemy will, will reward him if he's on their side. The thing is, is that, that they will hate him. Babylon will hate him because he loves Judah. And Judah hates him because he loves God. A bad place for Jeremiah to be in. So he continues with his own testimony of devotion and obedience to the Lord. Verses 16 and 17. He says to the Lord, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. 
I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. Jeremiah says, I've devoted myself to you. Your words were revealed to me and I ate them. The idea of eating the words of God. We see this in Ezekiel where he's, he's told to eat the little book. We see it in, in Revelation where John is told to eat the little book of the prophecies, right? He eats it and when he swallows it, it's bitter in his belly, um, though it was sweet in his mouth. And that's the idea of judgment, right? The idea of consuming these words uh, is, is that you are allowing them to filter into your life and to, to, to uh, uh, touch or to impact your being. If I eat food, that food becomes a part of me, right? Whatever nutrients it might has uh, fill, fills my body with, with uh, energy and, and um, the, the elements of that food are broken down and used in my body in various ways. So the idea of eating or consuming the Word of God is that you are putting it into you and you're allowing it to filter throughout your heart, your mind, and touch the way you live your life. And Jeremiah says, when I saw your word, when I found your word, I consumed your word. I ate it. It became unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I delighted in your word. Everything that we are supposed to do, we'll talk about that a little bit more in Jeremiah 17. That's going to be a fun night coming up here in two weeks. He says, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. You own me. I I heard your words, I committed myself to your words, I'm declaring your words, and I gave myself to you. You own me, Lord. And indeed, the words of God were the joy and rejoicing of his heart, the joy and rejoicing within. But what about without? He says, Lord, it's not just that I've rejoiced in your words in my heart. I've not sat in the assembly of the mockers. I've not rejoiced. I've sat alone. The idea is he did not rejoice as the other people did when the promises of God were mocked. Instead, Jeremiah says, I sat alone. The sole resistance to this blasphemy, the sole voice of devotion because of the Lord's hand, because of thy hand, Jeremiah says, you have filled me with indignation. Why? Because when Jeremiah ate the words of God, the judgments of God, Then he looks around at the world around him and it's filthy, right? He can't enjoy the sin of the world. He can't enjoy the sin of the people. He can't sit with the mockers. It's disgusting to him. It fills him with indignation because he has consumed the word of the Lord. When we're properly related to God, when we know the word of God, uh, when, we, when we feast upon the word of God, we look at the things that are not of the Lord's word. And, and, and it, it, it creates in us, uh, at, at the very least, some, some friction, I don't like it. It's not natural anymore. It doesn't, it's not right anymore. You, you see the filth that undergirds the, 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 the elements of this world. I give, I've given the illustration any number of times, but whenever I think of that idea of something, uh, of, of something that once was that you didn't even notice before and then you come back and you notice it, I always think of when I went to China for six weeks. It was only six weeks, but in China, there's not a lot of preservatives in their food, at least down in Hainan on this island, which was very, very remote. And, and so, you know, the, the foods were fresh and there were not a lot of preservatives. And I remember coming back and the first time I opened a jar of peanut butter. It didn't smell like peanut butter. I could smell the preservatives in it and it was really quite gross. I'd never smelled that before. I didn't know that that was in my peanut butter. I mean, I knew I could read the label, but I didn't know, but I could smell it in the peanut butter and I thought, this is, this is gross. 
and I got over that, but you know, you, you get used to it, right? But the, that's the idea. The idea is that Jeremiah says, I ate your words and then I couldn't sit with the mockers because of thy hand. The, the things that I heard, the things that I saw, it filled me with indignation. He became an outcast of his own people by virtue of his relationship to the word of God. And so he asks God in verse 18, why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed? Wilt thou be altogether unto me as a liar and as waters that fail? I believe it's still Jeremiah speaking to the Lord here. He calls the pain of this rejection and of dissent and of persecution, the pain of hearing the mocking and being filled with indignation. He says, this is a perpetual pain, a constant pain. He says, I have an incurable wound, the pain of sorrow, the pain of persecution, the pain of rejection, the pain of dissent, the pain of even hearing the mocking of the mockers, the blasphemy that has become uh, uh, constant in his ears that fills him with indignation. When he speaks to the people, they resist him. When he sits in silence, he hears the people speaking and it makes him angry, right? He can't get away from it. If he says, I'm just going to shut my mouth, then he hears the people and it just fills him with indignation at their mockery of the Lord and blasphemy of the Lord. And if he opens his mouth, then and they just mock and scorn him. His knowledge and love for the Lord in a land of evil and blasphemous people has made him absolutely miserable. And now he's discouraged. And he feels miserable because he's discouraged. Let's, let's make that clear. He doesn't have to be miserable. We'll see that in a little bit. He's miserable because he's discouraged. And he's discouraged because he's taken his eyes off of the prize. Just a little bit. He describes this wound as incurable, right? This pain that's perpetual. It never goes away. You feel it 24-7. Or the wound that is incurable. This in strong contrast to the way he used to feel when the word of God was the joy and rejoicing of his heart. Now he takes blow after blow after blow and there isn't any healing. It's like uh, he, he's, taking, he, he's, he's either being cut by the people or he's being silent and he's being cut by them as they speak, uh, right? One way or another, he's just constantly being cut. And it, it, it's, it's like you know when a dog has a wound and they keep licking the wound so it simply cannot heal until you put one of those big old cones on their head. And then they can finally leave it alone long enough to let the wound heal. This wound is being opened again and again and again. And he says it just won't heal because it keeps getting opened time and time again. And I'm not recovering God. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you felt that way. There are physical times, certainly, where we have a wound that might not be curing or, or we live in perpetual pain. But speaking spiritually, where you're going through a hard time emotionally, spiritually, and it's like thing after thing after thing is hitting just one after another and there's a wound and it's like it's getting bigger and worse and every time it's almost healed, it's like something else comes and scratches off the scab and causes it to bleed again and, it's just, and it just won't heal. Doesn't have time to heal. Just keeps reopening. This is, this is how Jeremiah feels at this time. This is what his life feels like. The sorrows, the trials, the frustrations, they just keep coming. There is no rest. And in this discouragement, he asks, asks God, will you be to me as a liar? That's quite a statement, isn't it? As waters that fail? Like a dried up well 
or clouds without rain. There is a time, God, when you said you would strengthen me. You said you would protect me. You said you would defend me. But I'm pretty near my breaking point, God. Have you failed me? I come back to the well and I feel like the well is dry. God, have you dried up? Are, are you to me a liar when you promised me that you would be this, you would make me this bulwark against the people? Because right now, I feel like the people are winning. I feel like the people have overcome me. My pain is constant. Have I trusted in you to my own hurt? Have I served you unto my own demise? There's many a Christian that might feel this way at times, many a minister that might feel this way at times, where it seems as though whatever choices you're making for the Lord, it's just causing you more pain and you're getting more discouraged and you're saying, is this even worth it? Have God's promises failed me? Well, God responds to Jeremiah in verse 19. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, if thou return... Then will I bring thee again, and thou shalt stand before me. And if thou take forth the precious from the vial, thou shalt be as my mouth. Let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. So there's again a debate about what's going on here. Is God rebuking Jeremiah? Some believe that the doubts of Jeremiah would not have been enough for God to call Jeremiah to return. And so maybe God is speaking to Israel here. I do believe God is speaking to Jeremiah. And I think that that's the most reasonable interpretation. And I don't think it's out of, out of touch to say that God is giving Jeremiah a mild rebuke here. Again, Jeremiah hasn't fully walked away yet. We're, we're going to see that happen in Jeremiah 20. But in this case, it does seem as though Jeremiah has drifted. That in his pain, in his suffering, in his discouragement, he's become discontent. He's taken his eyes off the Lord and it opened him up to this discouragement and this doubt. No man is above such things. And if we take our eyes off the Lord, we are all susceptible to this. Indeed, Peter had the faith to walk on water in Matthew 14, did he not? And yet, when he saw the winds boisterous, he was afraid and he began to sink, right? Peter got out of the boat. None of the others got out of the boat. No, no, no looking down on Peter. Peter was, the, he, he was the one that got out of the boat. And yet, even though he was the one that got out of the boat, when the winds were boisterous and around him and the waves were crashing around him, he looked at them, he took his eyes off of Jesus, and he began to sink. And Jesus gave Peter a soft rebuke. Peter's the one that got out of the boat, right? And yet in verse 31 of Matthew 14, Jesus says, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? It's a soft rebuke. Peter got out of the boat, but it's a rebuke nonetheless. And I believe that that's a little bit of what we're seeing here. Jeremiah is most certainly the one from the nation that has gotten out of the boat, right? Jeremiah is the one that ate the word of the Lord, that, that, that it filled his heart with the joy and rejoicing. Jeremiah is the one that is obeying the Lord and getting up. And now Jeremiah has been pummeled and pummeled and pummeled and he's tired. And in this state, he, he's taken his eyes off the Lord a little bit. He's drifted just a little bit. He has begun to get discouraged in his desire to be righteous because his eyes have been averted. He's taken 
his eyes off the Lord. So it would not be outside of the Lord to offer a soft rebuke to a faithful minister who has, in the midst of terrible pain and suffering and the weariness of life, the feelings of sorrow, when we open our mouths into rejection and the feelings of indignation when we attempt to sit quietly and hear the mockery of others, it's not uncommon to foster discouragement and it's, and it's not outside of, of, of the Lord when we get into these times of self-pity a little bit and discouragement and looking at ourselves for God just to come alongside and say, where's your faith? See, just because it's not uncommon for us to feel discouragement when we're being pummeled by the world, by sin, by these things, that doesn't make it right to get discouraged. And so the Lord might come alongside and say, return to me. If you return, I'll bring thee again. So God says to Jeremiah, if you, if you return, then I will bring you again to stand before me. You've drifted just a little bit, God says. You're discouraged. You're concerned. But I haven't changed, Jeremiah. I haven't moved. My promises are still here. So if you can't see them, Jeremiah, if you stand in doubt of the fact that I will be that, that bulwark for you, that you will be the iron pillar, that you will be the wall of brass, if you stand in doubt, if you can't see it anymore, Jeremiah, then who is moved? See, because I don't move, Jeremiah. It isn't that I have moved because my promises are faithful. Maybe you've undrifted a little bit. You, you, you've just drifted a little bit, Jeremiah. You've drifted out of the umbrella of my protection through your doubts and through your fears and through your concerns and through your discouragement. But instead, Jeremiah, if you will take forth the precious from the vile, he says, if you'll look and see what's right and what's not. See, it's not necessarily all wrong to feel discouragement as long as that discouragement is not in the Lord, but in perhaps ourselves or in others. If you, can, if you can parse, if you can get the filter of God's word, Jeremiah, and you can filter what is precious from what is vile, if you can filter what is right about your emotional response with that which is wrong with your emotional response, if you can separate the precious from the vile, then you'll return and be as my mouth again. If you can do this, then you'll be fully usable once again. Your mouth will be my mouth. You will speak with my power once again. You will feel the strength of my strength, the joy of my joy, the peace of my peace, and the power of my power. Stand with me and call the ministry up to you God says, don't drift to pursue it. Don't chase people down. Let it come to you. Regain the context of blessing by getting right with me, then taking the commission of God within this context. Don't chase it. Don't allow it to cause you to wander. Let it come to you. This final statement conjures up uh, my younger years. Uh, I, I played baseball in my younger years. And one of the things when I was standing at the plate and you've got that bat and you're waiting and when you're young, you know, the ball's coming all over and you're doing this, right? And, you're, and, and, and the coach would say, let the ball come to you. Let the ball come to you, right? The idea, don't chase the ball. The idea is you've got a box and the ball has to get within a particular range or else it's a ball, right? It's not a strike. You don't care about balls. You want, you want to make sure that, 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 that 
strikes are not happening, right? So don't chase the ball outside of the strike zone. Don't chase the ball. And then the other thing is, don't try to get ahead of the ball. The ball's coming to you. Don't move forward to go after the ball, right? Let the ball come to you. I think that there's a little bit of that, that that God is saying here. And the idea when he says, let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. Let the precious return to you. Don't return to the vile. Let the ministry come to you. Don't return to it. Don't chase after this message of judgment. Quit wearing yourself out trying so hard. Ministry isn't about you, Jeremiah. It's about me. Success isn't yours to achieve, Jeremiah. It's mine to work in you. You are supposed to be the tool, not the power source. Let the precious come to you and don't return unto the vile. Find out what's right. Find out what's wrong. Hold on to the right. Let go of the wrong. Stop going and looking for the sin of the people Stop going and tearing yourself up over, over the things that are happening. Let the ministry come to you. And then God in love renews his promise to Jeremiah. The last time we saw this was back in Jeremiah chapter 1. We see it again in verses 20 and 21 of Jeremiah 15. God says, And I will make thee unto this people a fenced brazen wall. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee to save thee and to deliver thee, saith the Lord. And I will deliver thee out of the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem thee out of the hand of the terrible. God says, if you stick with me, Jeremiah, if you can separate the precious from the vile in your heart, separate the precious from the vile in your ministry, let the precious come to you. Don't go back to the vile. If you can do this, The people will fight against you, but they will not prevail. There will be a stability in your heart because I am here to save you and to deliver you. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked. That word simply meaning really bad people, of course, right? And redeem you from the hand of the terrible. That meaning the powerful, the tyrannical, perhaps the kings. As we get a little farther in Jeremiah, we'll find that the kings... Um, and the authorities are very hostile to Jeremiah and to his message. And we'll see some of that. And God says, I'll deliver you from that. If you stay near me. If you stay near me. Well, that's our exposition this evening. The final verses of Jeremiah 15. We have three applications that I'd like to make together. And I hope that there'll be an encouragement to you. Point number one. Fear not. God is with you. Fear is crippling. Fear holds us in a prison of our own making. Fear binds us to possibilities which may or may not ever be realized. Fear is a natural human response to situations that are dangerous, that are difficult, that we feel are out of our control. Jeremiah considered the coming armies and he feared some things. Did he fear the armies themselves? Perhaps he did. He says, he said earlier on the idea that if his brethren treat him so badly, what will the armies do, right? But it seems that he feared some other things as well. It seems he feared that his entire life would be defined by sorrow and suffering. It seems he feared that the promises of God to protect and keep him had dried up. It seems that he had some fear led by discouragement The fear of man began to creep into his ministry. The fear of spiritual failure, perhaps. The fear of a life wasted or a life uh, of misery. 
And this is not uncommon in the heart of a man, not uncommon in the heart of a believer, not uncommon in the heart of a minister. But for we who are in Christ, though it is not an uncommon fear, it is indeed an an unnecessary fear, right? Obsolete. Fear which has been wholly superseded by the promises of God. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 9 as they were going into the promised land, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. Notice how fear and discouragement go together here as well. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. God's response to the temptation to to succumb to fear is to call men back to his promises. Call men back to his promises. That if we are on the Lord's side, what have we to fear? This may sound a little trite to you. Perhaps what's running through your mind is the same thing that, that runs through my mind when I think of that. When I say, the Lord is on my side, what have I to fear? Kind of sounds like a fortune cookie promise, right? Fortune cookie wisdom. It's all well and good to say that you have nothing to fear, but what happens when the problem is staring you in the eye? How do I not fear? What happens when the problem is right there? It's one thing for me to look at you, stand behind this pulpit on a Sunday evening and say, you don't have to fear. But what about when that fear is staring you in the eye? How do I not fear? And it comes down to a couple of things. The first thing that you need to consider is, number one, how real is the fear? As we parse fear, the first big problem, when, when, when we talk about fear, when we talk about anxiety, when we talk about discouragement, the first big problem is fearing things that are in the shadows, things that we don't actually know are there. Some people's fears are very real, but some people's fears are completely in their mind. They operate on what might happen someday, and they tap into the possibility of failure, the possibility of illness, and those fears drive them. They live completely constrained by what might be someday. And so they live locked in, frozen in time today, because they're so afraid of what might happen someday. They won't minister in the name of the Lord because of what might happen when they knock on that door, because of what might happen if they ask somebody to go to church with them, because they might get a no, because they might have a door slammed in their face. And so they operate on fear of what might be, even though it may never happen. And this is all in our minds. The fear of that which might happen can only be contended by making a choice to simply not fear that which is not real. I often tell people at the jail, especially when they're getting close to their outdate, because a lot of anxiety and fear comes as they get close to their outdate. I tell them, no one has ever solved any problem by worrying about it more. Worrying has never made a problem go away or get better. And on top of that, God does not grace us for tomorrow's problems today. If something does come about tomorrow that you're, it may or may not happen, if it does happen, then God's grace can see you through. And, and we're going to get to that more in a moment. Or maybe in God's grace, it, your fears won't be realized. Now, the second, as we talk about how real is your fear, the second idea, so some people's fears are very real. They have tangible reasons to fear. They are staring something in the face. They can look their problem in the eye. And really, either way, 
There's a second question that must be asked. The first question, how real is your fear? Is it tangible or is it just something that might happen? The second question, though, is very important. First, how real is the fear? Second, how real is your God? Which is stronger in you? Your confidence in the dangers ahead or your confidence in the God of your salvation? So David wrote this in Psalm 118, verses 1 through 14. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations compassed, um, compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. They compass me about, yea, they compass me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They compass me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song and is become my salvation. Romans 15.4 tells us that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Does this Old Testament passage of scripture here in Psalm 118 give you hope? Do the truths of God's faithfulness commend themselves to you? If the Lord is on my side and if I am on his side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? God is very big. Man is very small. God is very great. Man thinks himself very great. God is eternal. Man is but dust. The violence of man may come against us. The sorrows of sin may encompass us. But what of any of this rests outside of God's hand? What of any of this is outside of God's control? What of any of this? What of any physical, emotional, or spiritual circumstance that you could possibly face is bigger than God? There are none. There are none. And if there are none, that doesn't mean that tough days aren't ahead. That doesn't mean I don't get tired. That doesn't mean I, I, I don't have bad days. But, 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 but what it should mean is that I will not fear. What it should mean is that I will not allow those unknowns to become crippling. I will not allow them to lead me to distress or to despair. So it is that God comforted his people in Isaiah 41, 10, saying this, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. We are all human. 
We all have our times of weakness, but in times of fear, in times of dismay, in times of distress, in times of discouragement, it is time for what we know to override how we feel. Then fear and dismay will give way to confidence and strength because God is your God. And if God be for you, Romans 8 asks, who can be against you? Fear not, God is with you. Number two, sorrow not, God's word is true. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why must the righteous suffer? There are days when the heavens feel like iron. Does God even hear me? I sit and I hear the blasphemy. I hear the wickedness. I see the wickedness. It's filth all around me. Does God not know? Does God not see? Does God not care? I can't even go outside of my house without seeing the filth and the evil around me. And it's so distressing to me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Jeremiah asked in Jeremiah 8, verse 22. Is there nothing to soothe the burning? To soothe the pain. Jeremiah wondered on this day in Jeremiah 15 if the waters of God's word had failed, if the well of God had dried up, if his commitment was to emptiness. And once again, I turn to the, the, the psalmist to navigate the waters of such sorrows. Psalm of David in Psalm 25, the Bible says this in verses 1 through 5, a psalm of David. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Excuse me. Yes. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all day. Oh my God, David wrote, I trust in thee. Man doth not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Matthew 4, 4 tells us, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. How can I fear? How can I sorrow? How can I be put into this place of despair or fear or sorrow? How can I be so discouraged when the word of the Lord is true from beginning to end? He has shown himself to me. He has never failed. His word has never failed. Our memory work for this month, David writing again in Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. In the days of sorrow, in the days of fear, in the days of dismay, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart. Wait on the Lord. I would have fainted, David said, but I believed in the goodness of the Lord. And because I believed in the goodness of the Lord, I will not faint. What God is doing to Jeremiah this evening, in Jeremiah 15, is he's saying, Jeremiah, believe the goodness of the Lord. You've drifted a little bit. Come back to me. Wait on me. Wait. Trust. David would say again in Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He 
only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Pour out your heart to him, the Bible says. Trust only in him. Don't allow sorrow to prevail over hope. Don't allow circumstances of today to override the promises both of today and tomorrow. Don't take your eyes off the Lord. Don't stop trusting because God's word has never failed. One final point. Waver not. Wander not. God has never forsaken his own. So Jeremiah here seems to have become somewhat fearful and doubtful. He sustained blow after blow after blow, and they were no longer healing, and he was sinking into the mire of his own sorrows, of his own discouragement, to where he's even wondering if the Lord would be found of him as a liar. He was wavering in his confidence, and he was wavering from the path. It was a slow drift. It was a gradual drift. And when Jeremiah complained to the Lord, the Lord's answer was simply, well, come back. Return to me. And maybe Jeremiah hadn't even seen the drift. I've talked to you before about another illustration from my, from my childhood. I was with my friend and we were out on a little lake and he had a little, a, a little uh, boat with this tiny little motor on it. And we were fishing and he'd gotten his lure caught in the reeds close to the shore. And so we, I, I was on the little motor and we were working our way very slowly to try to get a hold of this line. And his father, my friend's father, was on the dock and he kept saying, Jamin, you're drifting close. You're going to hit bottom. And I kept looking around saying, I'm not moving. I mean, we're, we're, we're not moving. And he kept saying, you're drifting, you're drifting. And I didn't do anything because we're not moving until finally that little motor hit the bottom. Why did it hit the bottom? Why didn't I think I was moving? Because I was drifting ever so slowly and I was drifting with the water, right? The currents were taking the boat with me. So I didn't even see the motion. I didn't even see the movement. I had a hard time with uh, finding proper perspective. So someone outside, someone that wasn't moving had to be looking and saying, you're moving. I know you're moving because I know I'm not. Sometimes my children are on the dock near our, our, our house on the lake with us and they'll be standing on the dock and they'll say, why is the dock moving? Because they're looking at the water and as they see the water moving, they feel like they're moving, right? Because they see the water moving. And so there's a perspective idea there. Jeremiah had drifted. He hadn't even seen it, perhaps. But now he's in this place of discouragement, of a little bit of fear, of a little bit of anxiety. And God says... You need to correct yourself. And if you correct yourself, you get yourself back within the umbrella of my protection, then those walls will be up again. Maybe as you have contended with some element of the world that is around you, you have begun to wander a little bit. Maybe fallen back on some old habit or some old confidence. Maybe you've become frustrated and started becoming, get, getting a little bit self-pity, uh, a little bit of self-pity in you. Woe is me, my circumstances, uh, the things I have to deal with. Doesn't God know? Why has God put me here? Uh, why, why isn't he helping me? Maybe there's a little bit of dismay. Maybe there's a little bit of discouragement. Little problems then become big problems, right? Have you ever been there where you're just a little bit discouraged? Maybe even you know, guys just a little bit hungry and that makes you a little discouraged. And then all of a sudden little problems become big problems and you see 
something and it's not that big of a deal, but it's a big deal on that day, right? It's a big deal on that day because you're already a little discouraged. You're already a little tired for whatever reason. When you see those things, when you feel that discouragement, when you feel as though you're maybe a little bit thirsty, you're, you're, you're wandering and, and, and things are a little parched, that's the time where you say, you know what, I didn't feel it, I didn't see it, but I've wandered. You, you've got to see it then. And, and hear the voice of the Lord saying, return to me. It's time to stabilize the wavering. It's time to stop the drifting. See, because God has never forsaken his own and God has never failed. And if you are failing to see the power of God, if there is that discouragement, if there is that fear, if there is that sorrow in your heart, this is what you need to know about that, that that's not from God, right? It's not from God. And so if you're feeling it, then you need to return to the Lord. Something has moved, but it isn't God. Because God has never forsaken his own. Psalm 37, 23 through 27. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. The final point this evening is not intended by any means to be a hard rebuke. David writes here, depart from evil and do good. And the question is, have you drifted? It's not uncommon. You begin to feel spiritually parched. There's a noticeable spiritual lack Discouragement comes upon you. Frustrations begin to surface. Your ministry becomes ineffective. Bible study becomes less than ideal. Maybe you're no longer focusing. You're, you're, you're a little bit uh, distractible. Uh, you're thinking about other things. You, you're, 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 you're losing the fruitfulness of your Bible study. Maybe there's some distraction or some fear or some sorrow or some confusion. Uh, but here's the thing that you know. God has never forsaken his own. So if you're not in the place of, of blessedness, well, in the words of the hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Jeremiah said, God, what is wrong? I'm supposed to be the iron pillar. I'm supposed to be the brazen wall, but my pain is per per perpetual and my wounds are incurable. They refuse to be healed. And God says, Jeremiah, if you return to me, then I will bring you again. I will make you the brazen wall again. I will make you the iron pillar again. Is there some correction? Fear not. God is with you. Sorrow not. God's word is true. Waver not. Wander not. God has never forsaken his own. Have you drifted just a little bit? Are you dealing with some fear? Are you dealing with some discouragement? Are you dealing with some things? Uh, is the fear real? Or is it, uh, or is it just a possible, possible fear? If it is real... Is it bigger than your God? Is that circumstance bigger than your God? Is that problem bigger than your God? What has God said he is to you? What is God willing to be for you? Return to him and he will bring you again. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.